0: You're listening to a Whales or Whales production. You're also listening to Whales. Visit whalesorwhales.com for more projects and shows like this one. Hello and welcome to third person a storytelling podcast. This is episode 10 nonfiction and storytelling. We'll go into what exactly we mean by that later. But right now, I'm going to introduce myself. I'm your host, Brian, and my co host and friend, Abigail. Hello, Abigail. Aloha. Oh, wow. Being Hawaiian today. (laughs) I know. You're mixing it up.
1: I know all the languages. All of them. All of them.
0: What is hello in Mandarin?
1: I don't know. I'm sorry <laughs> if I just your, offended your. anyone who actually knows Mandarin and is listening to this.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's probably <laughs> unlikely, but technically possible. So, it is um, very
1: possible, and I I probably just alienated them from our podcast, so you are welcome.
0: Great. Um, our two you listeners, have our listeners two now. listeners who our, happen to be Mandarin. Yeah,
1: our two listeners, they're gone, so I'm sorry about that.
0: Dang it. Y'all didn't um, want to
1: hear this anyways.
0: Exactly. Yeah, I mean, this isn't worth listening to anyway. So you're best getting alienated right up front.
1: Exactly. Uh, but man, I mean, if we're gonna not, lose you, we're gonna lose you early.
0: It did not take me very long to prove your lie. <laughs>
1: I'm not a very good liar.
0: What is hello in German? You should know that.
1: I oh, forgot. Oh no. I oh, hi. <laughs> it's it's hi. hello That's one of them. It's
0: hello uh, guten oh, Tag. Okay.
1: If you're saying good morning, I know that.
0: All right, but if you're gonna be informal, it's not morning, Abigail. It's evening. So.
1: Huh? It's evening.
0: It's it's evening.
1: Good. What do you say? Nacht. That's night.
0: There you go. Good enough. Night. All right. Good enough. Nacht. Nacht.
1: (laughs) That That (laughs) totally sounded terrible. It does. I'm alienating our German audience now. Great. (laughs) Our thriving
0: German audience, Abigail. I'm. I'm just.
1: I'm just a stupid American, y'all guys. Like I don't know anything.
0: But the question is, how do you say hello in Mormonese? Mormons have their own language, correct? Uh,
1: uh, Hello, my name is (laughs) Elder Price.
0: (laughs) That was a really good answer. Thank you. All right. Now that we've alienated our Mormon (laughs) listeners, our German (laughs) listeners, and our Mandarin listeners, we are ready to begin the podcast. Awesome. Um,
1: (laughs) They had to be vetted, Okay.
0: Yes. So today's topic is going to be interesting. Um, unlike all of our other topics, because basically we're going to want to discuss the idea of nonfiction in storytelling and then using storytelling when writing nonfiction. And they're two different, but similar aspects. And they were actually recommended by someone you might know, Abigail. Are you aware of this aerial person?
1: Um, who's that?
0: Uh, I don't know. She mentioned that she, like, grew up with you or something.
1: Oh, she did. Oh, oh, she's that girl who was, like, always hanging out in my room or something.
0: Right. Um, yeah, she's, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I thought my
1: parents, like, rented out a bed or something.
0: <laughs> well, apparently she's your sister, or, or so goes the word on the grapevine. Oh,
1: Okay, that's but. cool. Hi, Ariel. Nice to meet you.
0: <laughs> Man, you forgot your roots fast.
1: It's pretty bad.
0: <laughs> it I'm like a bad.
1: gnat. I have a very s- small <laughs> memory. And apparently Lifespan. Anyways, moving on.
0: (laughs) So yeah, Ariel recommended this idea, and I liked it a lot as she started explaining it more to me. So I'm excited to talk about that soon. But first, Abigail, we need to talk about the catchy segment, What Have You Been Narratively (laughs) Involved With? Which we are not renaming.
1: (laughs) Oh, what have I been narratively involved with?
0: Yeah, cuz you know, you've listened to so many stories and read yeah. so many books and
1: I've I've been I've been narratively but
0: <laughs> You speak so well and articulately.
1: Mostly my dreams, actually I wish it was my dreams cuz then that would mean I'd be sleeping. Um oh, Wow. I have actually Okay, okay. So quick aside.
0: Do you actually have interesting dreams cuz my dreams are horrible.
1: Well, I mean, I would define a horrible dream as still interesting, but I mean, but no,
0: me- not horrible as in bad, horrible as in like, does not make sense? And I can never remember it.
1: Well, I have a lot of those, but a lot okay. of times I will have one that I remember too, and I'll just get up and I'll write it down or something. So I don't forget. That's a good
0: idea. But I need to do that more.
1: Yeah, no, sometimes <laughs> I know the, actually the other day I woke up super early and I was like, well, my alarm hasn't gone off, so it's not six yet. So I'll just lay uh-huh. here. Um, but I got nervous. Oh, those are the best kind of dreams. Yeah. I got nervous, though, that my alarm simply didn't go off because I was like, there's no mm-hmm. way that it's still before 6. So right. I purposely pulled myself out of the dream, which I remember being really interesting. But now that I pulled mm-hmm. myself out of it, I can't remember it at all. It ended up being 4.30. But, you know, I lost <laughs> my dream.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, it would be really awesome if we could like find someone who's actually smart about like uh, psychology and have them on the show to talk about storytelling and dreams. That would be fascinating. That would
1: actually be really cool.
0: Because it would be like complete guesswork for us, but I would love to hear like Pretty how much. storytelling intersects with how stories are told in your own mind. Um, that would
1: actually be really cool. Let's put that in the little barrel of ideas.
0: <laughs> the barrel of ideas. <laughs> yes, Our yes, very high. The brow. idea barrel. I love that Anyway, Abigail uh, So yeah, narratively involved with Other than your wonderful dreams
1: I realized um, just now That I've actually been narratively involved In two things Um, The the one that I told you about already Was my poetry homework um, Because I am in a poetry class right now For college Mm -hmm. And I've actually been doing my work Which is kind of new for me So that's that's cool Yeah Thank you. Thank you. Um, so I've been reading that, and actually, <laughs> I skip a lot of the poems, so I'm really not that narratively involved in it, but it's been very interesting to be looking at some new things and kind of learning some new ways to use language. That's mostly what I'm taking it for. Um, I'm not a poet, and I'm sure I never will be, but it's an interesting exercise because you have to learn how to use, use language... Mm-hmm. I guess morph it to your will. Um, you have to choose the exact right words to say exactly what you mean, but also mean something else. Um, or, you know, have things, do two things at once. Or right. if you want to do rhythm or rhyme, that's really, <laughs> that's really tough. So it was interesting to be learning about that and get to read some of that. Um, that's fun. But yep. the have other. You,
0: uh, mm-hmm. The only thing I remember from the poetry I did through college was uh, the, the Tiger from William Blake. Have you run across that yet?
1: I'm sure I have.
0: Um, my favorite part is this this line that has always stuck with me, which goes, What the hammer, what the chain, in what furnace was thy brain? <laughs> Potentially my favorite line in all of poetry. Okay,
1: I may not have read that.
0: <laughs> and you would remember it if you did. I would um, remember that. I just absolutely love that writing. It's, it's beautiful. It, it speaks is. volumes. That's
1: kind of glorious.
0: I think it was like my Skype status for a very long time is, In what furnace was thy brain? <laughs>
1: it that's it reminds me of a song that my mom used to sing to us about gladys with legs mm-hmm. like legs like toothpicks and a neck like a giraffe raff 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 and anyway she falls down the drain cuz she's so skinny <laughs> um and wow. so that's kind of <laughs> yeah that's kind of what that just reminded me of and now i'm thinking of the drain as a furnace and she died
0: see you do remember your childhood I you do you cut all ties yeah
1: i remember the horrifying bits <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, I mean, those do tend to stick with us, I suppose. Exactly. Um, Why
1: am oh, a tortured so, artist?
0: Before the show, <laughs> before the show, you were telling me about uh, a particular poem about a vampire cat lady.
1: <laughs> I was. The poem is called "Curse of the Catwoman," um, mm-hmm. and despite the name, it's not actually about a cat. Okay. Uh, it's about a vampire, which All right. is very interesting. I know. And I'm wondering if the whole vampire thing is another metaphor or if that's the story. Um, and I mean, it could be, but it could also just be a weird story because, um, it's basically using the metaphor of like cat people Mm -hmm. as representing the vampires. (laughs) And it's, Uh it's very interesting. It's about a a man and a, a man and a vampire woman, I suppose, who fall in love (laughs) and, uh, they can't, they can't come in contact because she knows that if they do, she's going to succumb to her nature and devour him.
0: See, this is already like a break from tradition, but it seems like whenever there are vampires, it's the non-vampire uh, girl falling in love with the vampire yeah,
1: guy. Yeah, it really is. Um, so, so this I, is like, <laughs> <throwing down laughs> Yeah. yeah, and I liked that it wasn't, like, dumb, and it's like, oh, yeah, you know, this actually won't work. Cool. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like,
0: no, this actually won't work. Yeah,
1: it actually won't work. <laughs> they tried, but uh, he ends up killing her.
0: Yep. Oh, so, ah, so it's about spoilers. death. So it is indeed a poem.
1: Yes, it is indeed a poem, because it is about death. He ends up killing her, but here's the thing that really makes it a poem. It's mm-hmm. okay. Oh, wow. Because now, instead of just being dead, she's been released from the curse that she's under.
0: Yes, that so, is very interesting.
1: Yeah, it's very poetic. Um, it was very interesting. It's one of the few poems that I stopped and went, "Oh, I've got to read this all the way through." Huh? I usually so just my, read like the first couple lines. My only
0: question about the the Catwoman from you know a poetic analytical sense is, in what furnace was thy brain?
1: Uh, the left one.
0: Oh, see, I I thought it was supposed to be ambiguous. That's yeah, that's fascinating. No,
1: it was actually the left one. There's like two. All right.
0: Um, okay. And they're over there in the corner. And so the right the one has the tiger brain in it. Yeah. And then the left one. Exa- okay. And the
1: left one has the cat woman brain in it.
0: See, that all makes sense now. It
1: does. It does. Poetry
0: is always such a mystery to me. See, this is why I you know. take college courses, people.
1: Exactly. You get smarter and questions. you learn about <laughs> cat women. So that's cool.
0: <laughs> nice. Nice.
1: Um, but for real, the the other thing that I just realized that I've been involved with recently yep. um, has been an audiobook. Um Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. Ah, uh, um, yes. Yes. I've gone through this one before, but I was just going out running and was like, well, I need something to listen to. Hey, that's on here. So started listening to that again, and it's still just as good as I remember. Um I know I mentioned this last time, but my favorite thing about it is just his conversational tone, which, you know, makes mm-hmm. sense because it was written for the radio. Right. But it's, it always baffles me when I listen to this book because I'm going, wow, these are such complex topics he's thinking about. He's explaining it in a foolproof way that is also very easy to understand and take in. He had a real gift for that. Yeah. And I mean, speaking of storytelling and nonfiction, he was great at it.
0: He does like extended metaphor and like a lot of that. Yeah. Slips in a metaphor and a parable like Mm -hmm. throughout his point making and really like, well articulated then, ways, wonders and really book,
1: solid metaphors, too,
0: yeah. one reason that book reads so well is because it was originally delivered as radio addresses. Mm-hmm. so it like has this charismatic like he's talking to you, feel about it
1: exactly. and i I know there's the there's even um an introduction before it where he's like, yeah, so I actually wrote this pretty poorly because it's on the radio. So I use things like contractions, which I don't believe belong in text. And I thought that was uh-huh. kind of funny. So I'm like, oh, how the world has changed. <laughs> now we have recently, blogs.
0: <laughs> now we have blogs and everything's doomed.
1: Everything's doomed. Yeah, I doomed. recently
0: found a an interesting, speaking of mere Christianity, an interesting philosophical book from someone who is also writing like in the late 40s to early 50s, mm-hmm. um, who is also writing philosophically Who is also writes a lot like C.S. Lewis in terms of being like very approachable and trying to take a complex subject and make it like a short book that explains it. But he's like an Episcopal uh, priest who became um, like Buddhist. Interesting. Basically, or at least like Eastern in thought. So yeah. it's like, it's really fascinating to read just as someone who's interested in comparative uh, philosophies because it's like a guy writing just like C.S. Lewis and making very similar argument styles and talking about the same problem C.S. Lewis is talking about, which is that was like the age where science was kind of usurping religion and everyone mm-hmm. was like uncertain of what the future was going to be in terms of philosophically, but making points- from a Buddhist perspective instead of a Christian perspective. Yeah. It's like so similar in writing styles. And it was just fascinating to me that's to really find cool. someone like a contemporary of C.S. Lewis who had a different viewpoint, who was also an Episcopal priest and C.S. Lewis was Episcopal. So ah. like they're, they're very similar people. So I thought that was kind of a fascinating uh, book to read.
1: Yeah. That's really cool. What is it called?
0: Oh, let me see if I can find it. Uh, the name of it, I can, it'll be in my Amazon. It's something about anxiety, uh, but I don't remember the full title. But it is in my Amazon thing. Ah, the wisdom of insecurity: a message for an age of anxiety by Alan W. Watts. Huh,
1: that's a very interesting title. I'll have to pick that up eventually.
0: Yeah, it's a, it's a super cool read. It's definitely interesting and just written super well. I got like halfway through it in one night just because it's so easy to 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 get through. Even though nice. he's talking about like super deep stuff, so it's it's really enjoyable.
1: That's pretty cool. That's the kind of stuff that makes you feel smarter.
0: <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly. Because they write in a way that isn't li- that is. Uh,
1: you don't really have to work too hard to understand it.
0: It's giving you complex concepts, but not in a way that you need to work to mm-hmm. realize them. And yeah. it does that by using storytelling in a lot of ways. So.
1: Oh, bring it back to the topic, why don't you?
0: Yeah, <laughs> I'm awesome like that, because I'm so smart.
1: Yeah, but that is actually um, the one thing that makes nonfiction bearable in my mind, because nonfiction <laughs> about storytelling is so dry. And that's the one reason s- everyone hates textbooks.
0: I was about to say, I nonfiction that i love reading is like history stuff but then mm-hmm. i realize history is basically one giant story it really so, is it's
1: one giant story
0: yeah so history books are in uh kind of by essence they are storytelling mm-hmm. um so yeah what of is that everything you've been uh narratively involved with recently
1: i mean besides every once in a while watching an episode of friends but that's just going to come that up every can't podcast. count can it i uh, love okay, so friends
0: is, is it good storytelling
1: it is really good storytelling, actually. Oh, okay. Yeah, I mean, it's formulaic, and you can,
0: mm-hmm.
1: all, like, the, the, the jokes come on a beat, so course, you can yeah. pretty much guess when they're going to come, because it's a sitcom. However, the the characters themselves are so vastly different from each other, and mm-hmm. have such quippy lines, and have such personality, and the actual overall story arc is through every single episode. Um, so it does make it very interesting to watch still. Um, I mean, each episode can be enjoyed by itself. You just Mm -hmm. don't know what's happening around it. I mean, you can still enjoy a self contained story, but the relationships between the characters are changing with every episode and things like that. So I've found it as one of the superior sitcoms. Um, right. So where does it rank in your
0: pantheon of sitcoms? Your very top? Probably. Wow. So above, uh, above what's it, how I met your mother.
1: It's hard to say, um, because to me, How I Met Your Mother is a reboot of Friends. Oh, really? So they're pretty much the same show. I mean, of course, I mean, of course, the characters are different and the story is different, but it's the same idea that it's just this group of friends that you follow throughout their life. Right. Um, I mean, instead of meeting in a coffee shop, they meet in a bar. That's pretty much the only (laughs) difference. So I really enjoy both of them a lot. Uh, Friends is a little cleaner. Surprisingly, mm-hmm. it's not that much cleaner, but it's a little yeah. bit less, uh, I, I guess, remember it being,
0: less direct. Yeah, I remember it being kind of like cutting edge for its time, yeah. but that was like the 90s or something. Oh, so. yeah.
1: No, it was definitely cutting edge. But like at the same time, if my little brother was watching it, he probably wouldn't know exactly what they're talking about all the time. Yeah, um, yeah. With how much mother it's a little bit worse, but I don't know. They're still mm-hmm. both pretty bad but I love them. I love them.
0: <laughs> All right. What does that say about you, Abigail? Oh, uh, well,
1: anyone who knows me.
0: <laughs> uh, so I, I don't
1: see the harm in in a, in a dirty joke every once in a while.
0: <laughs> yep, exactly. Except on this podcast. Where Except we are on this podcast where we want to clean friendly. writing. <laughs> yeah, not, yeah, we won't. Uh, you won't catch uh, us dropping F-bombs every other word. We'll
1: try not You to. won't
0: in friends either.
1: <laughs> That's true. <laughs>
0: Uh well that's that sounds like a good time. Um it sounds like a low energy um a low energy show to keep up with. Yeah,
1: low energy <laughs> high quality. Like I would yep. say as compared to something like Big Bang Theory where I just hate mm-hmm. myself for watching it. Um yep. I don't actually hate myself for watching Friends, yet I still don't have to put in a ton of energy. Yeah, see I, I approve it. of this
0: over Big Bang Theory. Yeah. The little I've seen of that show, it it seems irredeemable.
1: <laughs> it is pretty irredeemable. I don't know why I've watched so much of it.
0: I've I've watched irredeemable shows before so it's okay. <laughs> I've watched, yeah, really bad shows sometimes, and it's just like, man, these are stupid. Yeah, But because I they're TV shows, they once you start, they can hook you.
1: Oh, yeah. I just have hurt. this sense of I need to accomplish something, and I need to finish the show. <laughs> it's, that's one exactly. reason I don't really watch cop shows. Um, I've been told to watch House repeatedly, and mm-hmm. I need to do this, and I've been told to start in the middle. But it's really hard for me to start in the middle because I'm like, ah, oh, but then I haven't yeah. seen the whole show.
0: Speaking of cop shows that apparently get... uh later on. Yes. I'm gonna stand in for Steven here, our, our missing panelist and people who know the show. I didn't
1: even notice he was gone.
0: Oh dear, wow. Where'd yeah, he go? That, that says something about, about him. It says how darn similar he is to me. Um so <laughs> or does it
1: say something about me?
0: It might say something about you as well. Mm. You you heartless fiend. I know. Then furnaces thy brain? <laughs>
1: All right. It's so, in the right one.
0: <laughs> so Steven's you're a tiger? Anyway, I Steven's am. busy today, and but he has caught up to where I am in supernatural nice um and he basically uh agrees with me about it now so um <laughs> so i wait, knew where given where are time, you what season are you in i'm not in i'm just like 12 episodes in um so i'm not very far it hasn't gotten great yet but i thought it w- had a lot of potential and it's pretty enjoyable and he thinks the same thing um, oh okay i has, thought
1: he was way further than you for some reason
0: no no not in uh not in supernatural um i have a friend who's gotten super far in it but that friend is not steven um yeah, I think we're both like up to episode 15 or something in the first season, so we've not made it far, but the reason he was catching up with me is we're probably going to start watching it together now. Nice. Because um, it's a really fun type of show to do that for. Uh, and yeah, it it continues to get better and tell much uh more intricate stories and have much better character development through them. So hopefully it continues on this path of being focused more on the story and less on just, ooh, it's a scary monster. Mm-hmm. Boo. Boo. Um, so yeah, I that's hate what- I
1: that. That's just- <laughs> Boo. <laughs> ah! <laughs> so,
0: so that's what he's uh he's been up to uh i haven't really been involved with much narratively the only thing i have been doing lately is i have been playing through the original resident evil um which is a that game interesting a horror game that was released i think in like 1999 maybe a little bit earlier on the original playstation um very old game but they made a remaster of it and like updated all the visuals oh, wow. and sound and stuff on steam recently that's really uh, cool, and my friend highly recommended it, so I'm trying it out. It's an interesting game because the storytelling is both fantastic and terrible. Um, okay. And here's <laughs> here's kind of how that works. So it's a horror game. The premise is you are a military uh, investigator who is looking into a rash of murders that has been happening recently of people who are being eaten. Um, already, fantastic opening. Yeah. And so
1: I'm digging so this.
0: So it's this cutscene of you walking through a forest, and then these rabid, crazy dogs attack your team and chase you into an old, abandoned mansion. Mm-hmm. So it's just classic horror. <laughs> crazy dogs chase you into a mansion. You're stuck there. You need to find a way to survive and regroup with the rest of your peers. Mm-hmm. Um So the story itself, like the voice acting and the uh, writing and the plot events are awful. It's just like... <laughs> B-movie horror. I mean, this story, the, the voice acting, I need to show you some voice clips in this game later because they are legendarily horrible. <laughs> like, they are known to be some of the worst in video games because the game was developed in Japan in an uh, era where they were really cheap about bringing it over here. So yeah. not only was the translation poor, but they hired, like, the cheapest voice actors possible. How about going down to check by yourself? I have a rope here.
1: Oh, do you? Well, then I'll try to go down using the rope.
0: Luckily, the voice acting is slightly updated for the remaster. It's not the original, like, terrible stuff, but the writing is still so off that you can't, like, take any of the actual story beats seriously. Mm -hmm. However, what's interesting about the game is most of the game itself does not take place in cutscenes or story at all. It's about the actual playing of it. Mm -hmm. And it creates a very interesting story in that respect because... It it creates horror in a way that actually makes you feel rather powerless, which is something that games don't do very much anymore. There's a slight mm-hmm. renaissance about it, but how mainstream games have become a great example is something like Assassin's Creed, where they try to make you feel like the super powerful, you can kill anything, like the um, raddest guy alive. They mm-hmm. give you all the weapons you need. They make combat really simple. They let you know, kill 10 people in a row and keep running along your merry way. And very much focused on just making you, the player, feel powerful and you, the player, feel cool. And that's kind of how modern games have become. They've become much like Hollywood movies. Mm-hmm. Um, what's interesting about Resident Evil is there is, like, not enough ammo in this game to kill every zombie that is in this mansion. That's so scary. Even you cannot kill everything. <laughs> so I started playing the game for about 45 minutes. Um, and I literally ran out of ammo and couldn't get anywhere. And I talked to Cameron, uh, my friend and fellow podcaster who's played through this game a lot. And I'm like, Cameron, help him out of ammo. And he's like, okay, you're playing the game wrong. You can't just kill everything in this game. It's not a game where you just go through and see an enemy. So it's about
1: surviving, not like winning.
0: Exactly. It's truly a survival horror game. And that's really interesting is you're having to make your way through this mansion and solve the puzzles, but the zombies are scary, not just because, oh, it's a combat encounter. I have to kill it. It's like, do I waste my precious resources on this or do I run? Um, do mm-hmm. I try to find a way around him? Do I go a different path? Can I find a safe room and get more ammo? So there's like this constant tension to everything and tell and makes a really like involving s- story you create throughout it, because it's also like a very open ended game. You could do things in a lot of different orders. So you're like exploring this mansion that's telling the story to you kind of becomes a character of its own. And you're constantly paranoid about conserving the precious resources you have and not wasting them. Mm -hmm. And it's like, it plays on fear because when something jumps out at you or you misjudge a camera angle and suddenly you're walking right into a zombie, you might waste very precious ammo just trying to get out of that situation and shooting him with a shotgun blast. Mm -hmm. Which is not the smart thing to do, but it's what your panicked mind did. So it's a really interesting way of like pulling on fear and making a slow build up to fear rather than just jump scares and violence, which Mm -hmm. a lot of other horror likes likes to use. So... Oh, I have a I've question really for you. Yes.
1: Do you play this in the dark? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's the only way to play a horror game. That sounds really great. That actually, I mean, it reminds me of the, the one of like two other horror games that I actually really know about, mm-hmm. um, which is called something.
0: Okay. I is just it
1: had the name. starts Amnesia? The P. Nope. It's the no. other one.
0: Oh, Penumbra. Penumbra. Yeah. Yes. It's a little similar to that in that that game's about running, not fighting.
1: Yes, it is about running and not fighting. Um, And in that game, I seem to recall, I mean, I didn't play Amnesia, but I did see mm-hmm. a lot of Penumbra played when my brother played it. Um yes. Whenever, like, something scary began to happen, your character actually started freaking out. Yeah. And you had to, like, look, look at a wall, and you didn't know what was happening. And so a lot of that was the fear of the unknown, which mm-hmm. is actually what a lot of the fear in books and movies are based on. And so when I see a game that actually plays on that, um, and same thing with Resident Evil, it's the fear of the unknown, because you don't have enough ammo.
0: Yeah, you enter a room and you're like, please say there's nothing in here. <laughs> exactly. I'm an
1: that sounds like it's actually gripping.
0: Yeah, it really is. I'm enjoying it a lot. I've actually been like streaming it out so my friend can watch me. and And nice. uh, he has been enjoying that a lot. Um, and yeah, it's, it does zombies right, because zombies, how a lot of people have addressed it as well, zombies are dumb and slow, so I guess we just need to throw hundreds of them at you. Yeah. Um. But this kind of takes the idea of the scary thing about zombies is how, um, how much they can withstand and how just by grading you down, you will die before they die. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of, it's the survivability of zombies that is so scary. Even yeah. when you kill them, they come back to life again. So it's this idea of like, you just have to hope you, just you can survive. Win. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There was actually awesome. kind of one, one really funny moment where there's a zombie laying on the ground and I'm like, oh man, it would be so mean if like he, he stands up when I walk past him like a zombie is playing dead. Um, and I walked past him and I was wrong. I'm like, oh, he's not actually playing dead. Okay, cool. I walked past the next zombie and he was playing (laughs) dead. (laughs) Double tap, double tap. And yeah, that totally freaked me out. So I've been burning every zombie corpse I come across now. (laughs) (laughs) Just to be double sure. So yeah, that's been really cool. Uh, just fun to go back to this gaming, uh, like really a relic now as games go, like almost like 25 years old or 15 years old and it still holds up in a lot of ways. So
1: that's awesome.
0: Interesting storytelling in a non-traditional sense, considering the actual storytelling in that game is so awful. <laughs> uh, but yeah, we can move on now to our main topic, Yay. nonfiction and storytelling. Um, so thank you, Ariel, again, for uh, suggesting this. She is also the person who has been in charge of getting her stuff up on YouTube. Woo-hoo, I'm Garp. very thankful for her for doing that. Unfortunately, she has a horrible computer and horrible internet connection, so it's been very hard for her to actually edit the videos. Um, yeah. So if they're ever late, blame technology. Um, but yes, she's been working hard on that front.
1: I was really nervous. I thought you were going to say if they were ever late, blame her. And I'm like, no!
0: <laughs> no, I'm not that mean. <laughs> I, I respect people's time and the effort they put into this stuff. Absolutely. Um, even if they have terrible technology, not their fault. Um, so this is an interesting topic because it's really two-pronged. One idea is the idea of nonfiction in storytelling, and the other is using storytelling when writing nonfiction. And first, we are going to cover the one I said first, which is nonfiction in storytelling. Um, the first obvious question here is, what do we mean by this? Um and basically what we mean by it is the idea of nonfiction works existing within a fictional world. An example of this would be like a book about the fictional world that someone in that fictional world reads. Mm-hmm. Um or it might be like a trying to think of other examples beyond just books. General that exist lore, in
1: um passed down orally. It could be a tradition. Right. It could be a um like a, a folk story. That seems Mm -hmm. to be a really popular one um, when, you know, characters are going and someone's like, oh, well, here's this story that no one knows if it's actually true, but it's become a part of their nonfiction.
0: Exactly. So basically just think about what nonfiction is in the real world and then think about that existing within a fictional context. Mm -hmm. Um, Within a story you're reading, they have nonfiction. Um, so some examples of this being done in fiction. The first one that popped to mind in my mind and one that uh, Ariel brought up is in the Elder Scrolls games, there is a lot of lore existing in that world in the form of like books and scrolls and stuff that you can find mm-hmm. in the various um, various areas of the game. And what's interesting about that world in that game is they have put like ludicrous amounts of thought into the lore and the world surrounding those games. I have, read a book about the theology of the game's religions that was more wow. complex than actual theology books I've read. Like, that's how much that thought that the developers have really put into that world. So even when I was very young and didn't really even think about any of this, I was playing Morrowind and just was blown away by how much there was to learn about that world just by the in-game texts mm-hmm. that were written like books within that world. It gives you such a window into what that game does. Um A lot of high fantasy games do similar concepts. Something like uh, Dragon Age has a codex that you unlock entries in as you go along. It does a really good way um, of teaching you information. Something they've done that's really interesting later on in the Dragon Age games is like you'll find uh, the codex entries won't just be like describing what something is, but they'll describe it by like showing a letter from someone about this uh, particular monster or showing a... Excerpt from a book about this particular place. So they're like pull from all these different sources of writing within the world to explain the world around you, which is mm-hmm. really interesting. Uh, what are some other examples, Abigail, that you've run across?
1: Um, the one that came to my mind the very first, and you actually wrote down in some of your notes was The Lord mm-hmm. of the Rings. Um, when I think of nonfiction and ow, I just hurt myself.
0: Oh dear. What did you do?
1: <laughs> I stubbed my toe and I'm sitting. Wow. I know. <laughs> that's, that's, <laughs> that's impressive, impressive. actually. <laughs> <laughs> when I think of nonfiction in a fictional world, the first thing I think yes. of actually is the story of Baron and Luthien. Oh, um,
0: that's an excellent one.
1: Yeah, because there's this scene, it's right in the beginning of the, of the, the Fellowship of the Ring when um, it's right before Frodo gets stabbed by one of the Nazgul. And they're kind of camping out and uh, Aragorn, or Strider as he's called at that time, is yes. singing a song of Baron and Luthien. and. hmm that story itself, the the cool thing is, I mean, Tolkien had actually written that whole story out and gave a condensed right. version of it here just to add flavor to the world. Um, but Lord of the Rings is really cool in that it, it didn't necessarily create a world and then begin to explain it away with lore and text and whatnot. Um Tolkien actually did it backwards and created all the lore and the texts and then created a world from that.
0: Exactly. Um, the Lord of the Rings proper was actually just him trying to tell a history of his much. existing world.
1: Yeah, like It's not like,
0: I need to create lore so I can make a fictional work in it. it not was at just all. Kind of, he just he wanted happened to, write a language. to love-
1: etymology and love history and love languages and he just mm-hmm. played around in it and then went, hey, let's tell a story in it. So that's... Right. It's really cool. And then after his death, of course, his his uh, his son organized his notes together and published The Cimmerillion, which is pretty much the lore of the world. So it's really interesting to be able to go back and read that. And then mm-hmm. you can put everything else in the context of that because you get you get to hear in lord of the rings about how it's the third age um you know it's the third age it's the age of men but then you're like well what about ages one and two um you Mm -hmm. need to read about that in the simarillion so it's kind of cool to see how things progressed and see you know the bad guys go from one age to the next to you know where they ended up how sauron became the way he is and things like that it just adds a lot of flavor
0: yeah, and I think that's one reason, partially because Lord of the Rings started it, but also because of just how they're written, why epic fantasies are so big in these uh nonfiction existing in their mm-hmm. worlds, is they typically create a larger context of a world before they then create substories within it. So they need a way to tell you about all that other lore out there. And nonfiction is a great way to do it, because mm-hmm. all that lore does exist within that world. It's just like history in our world.
1: Absolutely. Um, it's a great I, way to just solidify the idea that the world exists because you're not going to have a world that doesn't have nonfiction written in it,
0: right? And that's one reason I love uh, epic fantasies so much. Is I love stories that like have a world and then say, "Let's create a story in this world," rather than have a story and say, "I need to create a world that supports this story." Mm-hmm. Like I, I, I like the thinking behind creating. I think it also lets you create more inventive stories because you can just even creating a small. um seemingly unimportant story can still be a large story because it points to all these other bigger frameworks you created around mm-hmm. it. Um,
1: Speaking of that, that's actually something and I know it's because they're based on the epic fantasy, fantasy mm-hmm. but that's actually something you see in a lot of role-playing games as well.
0: Oh, absolutely. <laughs> because uh, Elder it'll Strong, take, Dragon Age.
1: Yeah, it'll take hours and hours and hours to put together a campaign that the game master will lead the players through, but the players oh, yeah, like only Pathfinder get to see, yeah, like actual like, sit-down tabletop role-play. Um, The players only get to see a small portion of what the Mm -hmm. Game Master actually puts together. But there's all these places that you can, you know, you can learn about how the world was put together or what's going on. um, And you may or may not even get to it. So it's much more like a real life experience as you're kind of walking around in this little pretend place.
0: Something else interesting, um, an, an interesting example of this is like in historical fiction. Um, mm-hmm. Sometimes people are able to use nonfiction and tie it into their storytelling really well. It's almost oh, a blend of this and storytelling and nonfiction. So an example of this for me is "Winds of War" is like an epic that was written about uh family and World War II, mm-hmm. and something it does between each like part or each act, it has these excerpts from a uh, from a fictional nonfiction book. So, mm-hmm. like one is written by a German general telling the history of the war as someone who worked wi- on the German military side with Adolf Hitler, um, and so they'll take these breaks between the actual story to have this fictional character basically writing a real history book about Germany and writing mm-hmm. it from this really interesting perspective. And that was one of the most memorable parts of the book for me because he is able to like create his own history within real history. That's really and it cool. was fascinating.
1: Yeah, I've always loved. Um Dramaticized history, I guess is the best way to explain it. But when Mm -hmm. it's actually nonfiction, these events actually happen. However, they're being told from like being told in such a way that it reads like a novel rather than a history book. You get to see inside their thoughts and stuff. So a lot of that's still made up. But that actually, you know, it's it kind of goes hand in hand with the whole. Um, I'm losing all my words today. The the,
0: (laughs) storytelling in nonfiction,
1: uh, the thing you just mentioned. Oh, good. (laughs)
0: Well, fiction
1: fictional history historical, fiction. Yes. There historical go. fiction there you go so sorry i got so little sleep no, that's um okay. but yeah so like it goes hand in hand because it's historical it's kind of like historical fiction only mm-hmm. it actually happened and those right. are the kinds of stories that i actually remember those events um because as i said earlier no one likes to read a textbook um yeah. people like to read stories and a lot of What gets you engaged in the story is how that story plays on your emotions. Whether you're going to admit it or not, that's what happens. Um, and so being able to see inside people's heads like that, especially someone who you would never sympathize with, um, you know, Mm -hmm. you're not going to sympathize with a Nazi general. But once you see inside their head, it gets a little bit, you know, you start, that's when your perspective can kind of change. And so that's one reason I really, really like the dramatized histories, especially of, um, you know, characters that I wouldn't necessarily sympathize with. It's like, Oh, Hey, look, they actually were people too.
0: Yeah, I totally agree with you. Um, that was actually something that the, that specific book did is like, it was so interesting hearing a Nazi general who's like, well, the only reason we wa- w- lost this war is because we like thought it inefficiently. And mm-hmm. like hearing other, hearing something other than just, Oh, Germany lost the war when they went to war with Russia. Like it's hearing it from Germany, like, because since he was a high general, in the army, he was, like, trying to vindicate his own actions. Like, he mm-hmm. was trying to say, listen, I supported going to war with Russia, but here's why I was going to work. And it was so interesting, like, hearing, you know, something other than just another book telling you what happened. It's someone telling you with a personal stake in it. So mm-hmm. you knew to, like, take all his words with a grain of salt, but you could hear it from a different perspective.
1: Absolutely. Um, and A really similar thing happened in – I mean, it's, it's not exactly a nonfiction kind of thing, but a, a similar mm-hmm. thing happened in The Boy with the Striped Pajamas. Um, his family was in Germany and you got to see some of the things that a tutor was teaching the young girl. And a lot of that, I don't know if that was, uh, actual nonfiction propaganda that they were showing Mm -hmm. or, um, if some of that was, you know, made up, I'm sure a lot of it was made up, but this idea of (laughs) these history books that are just written so whacked, um, Because he's mm-hmm. legit reading a history book out to her about how, you know, Jews are the devil and stuff like that. And it's just kind of <laughs> creepy because you're going, oh, wow, this young impressionable girl is going right. to be completely turned because she's being told something that's twisted. Um, so it's interesting kind of seeing hi- history twisted.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. I really like it when uh, fictional worlds or even like historical fictional worlds bring in – like, educational materials is a great example of nonfiction, not mm-hmm. just, like, books people read, but, like, seeing a class that would be taught in this world mm-hmm. gives you a great idea of how the world works. Like, what are they teaching their children? Mm-hmm. It's it's that idea of seeing, like, what these people consume, not just, like, the stories and songs they consume, but, like, the the facts they consume mm-hmm. in this world. And Absolutely. And how they're similar to our I know something like that different.
1: happened at the beginning of Serenity as well. They opened that up on a class. And right. It, I, mean, I it, forgot about it, that. At first, yeah, at first it looks a lot like you're learning you know, history facts and whatnot, but then it becomes a little bit more clear that it's like, hey, I'm not sure all this really lines up. Right. Um, but we yeah. only know that because we're not young and impressionable. <laughs>
0: <laughs> exactly. Um, so any other examples for, for this, or should we move on to uh, f- to our second topic?
1: Um, I think that actually covers it pretty well. I know we had a yeah, couple more written out, but... Wait, I think that it. covered it pretty well <laughs> as
0: well. Um, so before we move on, just real quick, actually, I think we also covered the next thing I was going to talk about, which is just like, is this effective and why is it effective? I and mean, I think we cover that in that it just adds a texture to the world. Yeah. Like it, it makes helps the you world under- believable. Exactly. It makes the world believable and helps you understand it. Like when Aragorn sings that song, or when you find that text and dragon age about another country, you realize the world is bigger than the story that's being told. Mm-hmm. Um and that's always to me an incredible feeling.
1: Yeah, it also helps you understand the characters themselves, because um, you can you you learn through that song that Aragorn wants something more than what he's currently doing.
0: So right, Strider exactly. is more than
1: Strider. Strider is someone who is in love. Um,
0: because. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like in the real world, you exist as a person, but the world doesn't revolve around you. You're one part Mm -hmm. of a larger whole. Your story is affecting the world and the world is affecting your story. And sometimes I think stories can lose sight of that. And, you know, because it's a centered narrative, the protagonist becomes the center of the whole world. Mm -hmm. Um, But I find it very interesting when you realize there's a whole um, framework around the protagonist that's more important than the protagonist, and he's just one part of this. Absolutely. Nonfiction works do an incredible job of bringing that to focus.
1: I think that's one reason we like protagonists who are not like the all-knowing Superman-type characters. Right. Because we like to see them learn those things and grow, and we're like, oh, hey, that's like me. I'm not the only one.
0: Um, yep, exactly. And it's
1: through a lot of that nonfiction that that happens.
0: Yeah, Brandon Sanderson actually does a fantastic job of this in um, the, I was about to say the Kingkiller Chronicles, but that's Rothfuss, <laughs> uh, Patrick Rothfuss. <laughs> in Kings. uh Kings. In Words of Radiance oh. um, and Way of Kings, Yeah. And the Stormlight Archives, that's what the whole series is called, because he actually has one of his characters, one of his primary characters is studying to be a scholar uh-huh. um, in that world. So she's constantly- wait, wait, you have
1: to study to be a scholar?
0: Well, pretty much.
1: Doesn't studying <laughs> like, make you a scholar?
0: <laughs> uh, that's a good question.
1: Anyway, I don't remember on. if that's the exact title <laughs>
0: she's working. That's actually, uh, is scholar just mean you're studying? Like if I you mean, start taking elementary like, school, are you a scholar? Um, I thought I like, was stuff Metro Prestige or something.
1: I, I think it's it, well. We'll find out. Define scholar. Yeah.
0: See, I want to know this. Thing. Like, it's <laughs> a probably specialist in a particular
1: ways. branch of study, especially the humanities. A distinguished academic.
0: Okay, so he's trying to become a distinguished academic.
1: Okay. Basically.
0: Okay. Uh, I forget if it's a more specific role than that or not. There's a but second definition
1: here that says a person who is highly educated or has an aptitude for studies. So that's where I got confused because I was thinking.
0: There about you one. go. <laughs> see multiple meanings. Gotta love English. Look at that. Um, <laughs> so she is studying to be a scholar. Um, and so in that, like, you're constantly finding these different fields of study that the world works with, uh, the philosophers they follow, the types of religion mm. they study. Uh, and it's just fascinating to see, like, the, you know, the magical properties that, that exist in that world are just another school of thought they study like we study science. So Brandon Sanderson has always done a fantastic job of creating non-fictional realities to like his magic systems and fantasies and making them feel yeah. like we treat science instead of just like they're shooting fireballs yeah um, so he doesn't and that nice is that
1: matter. is something to point out i guess as f- the difference between a someone who writes thrillers and someone who writes mm-hmm. epic fantasy um someone who likes i mean the, the different genres actually fall into a different style of Reading and writing huh oh, surprise surprise um, <laughs> but the ones who write epic fantasies are usually the people who like history the hip- the people who like to create the world um, yeah. they still like to tell stories but they're the the joy of those stories comes from exploring the world, which is why it can leave a bad taste in someone's mouth if they are more of a thriller lover or more of like a chick- flick watcher <laughs> me mm-hmm. <laughs> um, who enjoys <laughs> the very small tightly wound you don't have to necessarily know a lot about this world to understand
0: right um exactly it takes a
1: very different type of reader
0: that's true i think some of the best stories are the ones that create really personal stories within a vast Mm -hmm. world and those are like not everyone gets that across like i wouldn't say i think that's an example of like the hobbits in the lord of the rings were a fantastic job of that like Mm -hmm. the hobbits in the end were wrapped up in their own world there was that larger world that they're trying to help around them but their story was so personal and so relatable that you almost forgot you don't even need that framework for that story to be good Um, I
1: love Lord of the Rings for that. I think that that one gets such a wide audience because mm -hmm. he does the mixture so well and it's really not that hard to understand.
0: Exactly. And I think Brandon Sanderson is one of the better writers at doing Mm -hmm. that. Um, And if like the Elder Scrolls is bad at it, there are no good characters in Elder Scrolls games. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's something unfortunate. Dragon Age is much, much better at creating characters within a world, but it's so easy to get caught up in your own lore that you forget to actually make interesting people in it.
1: Yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh, I see that happen way too often. <laughs> oh
0: yeah. Absolutely. I think like Pathfinder stuff can easily fall into that mm-hmm. as well. So um yeah, that that is I we did a surprisingly good job of wow, that. I didn't high expect five. us to Yeah. There we go. We're not actually in like the same room. So
1: <laughs> That's why our high we fives did. were not at the same time.
0: Uh exactly. <laughs> oh shoot, I'm gonna see that and say, Why am I syncing up the files forty three minutes <laughs> in? <laughs> All right. So moving on to our second topic here storytelling in nonfiction. Woo-hoo! Abigail, what the heck does this mean?
1: Um, it means using the technique of storytelling to get across what you are trying to say. Um, storytelling in nonfiction is very different from nonfiction in storytelling because it has a completely different purpose. Mm-hmm. While it does have the similar purpose of trying to make it a little bit more colorful. Usually Mm -hmm. when you're telling nonfiction, you have some kind of agenda. Right. Whether you are trying to inform someone, trying to sell someone, trying to persuade someone, you always have an agenda when you're telling. There's an
0: objective to writing it. Yeah. Except in the case of maybe like a journal.
1: Yeah, exactly. There's usually an objective. And uh, from what I have seen... Storytelling oftentimes, um, it kind of serves a couple purposes. One would just be to, you know, illustrate your point. Um, Mm -hmm. because people just think in stories, um, i.e. journal entries. (laughs) Journal entries are just complete stories. There's Mm -hmm. really nothing else. You know, I did this. I did that. I feel this way. Um, you know, he did that to me or whatever. Um, but it also brings a reader into the nonfiction a little bit more because it has, uh, emotion tied in with it. And that's something that you're really going to need if you're going to persuade someone or if you're going to entice right. someone to do something. So that's why a lot of that is in um, those kinds of like speeches and mm-hmm. uh, copy and things like that have a lot of stories in them.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, because storytelling, I mean, as we talked about in our first episode, it's like, it's really intrinsic to humans. They respond absolutely. very strongly to stories. Mm-hmm. So if you're trying to get something across, either just to teach them something and make it stick or trying to make them think a different way, you're going to tell them a story.
1: Mm-hmm. And That's why the- look at all the <laughs> classic
0: stories are like trying to get morals across. If you yeah, like it, um, absolutely.
1: There's uh, Aesop's Fables. The first four books of the New Testament are is almost completely stories. Yep. Um, anytime there's... Um, I, I see speakers do this all the time. Um, mm-hmm. If you watch a lot of TED talks or anything like that, bloggers do right. this all the time. They'll they'll <laughs> open um, with a story, and one of my favorite people that does it the best uh, would be Jeff Myers. He uh, is a teacher, and he opens his talks with this really intriguing, really engaging story. And it's usually something that happened to him personally, and mm-hmm. then he'll tie that story into what he's saying, and so. I remember so many of his talks because I remember that story
0: mm-hmm. and
1: I don't remember actually what he talked about, but I remember <laughs> how he equated that story to his point and right. it's stuck with me ever since. And so I'm just like, Oh my gosh, this guy is like amazing. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's, it's just really persuasive. So like, what are some, some other examples that came up here are like parables. That was a really good point mm-hmm. because if you look at the new Testament, like, Jesus was a pretty, uh, or or depending on your 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 uh, your thoughts, like the people whoever wrote the gospel, <laughs> direct direct writings of Jesus, or people who who were who were writing like yeah. translations. Um, really impressive storyteller. There's a I lot mean, of stories. And not to, because like he was trying to make moral points uh-huh. to people that weren't really willing to listen to them in a lot of ways, or weren't really able to get them, and were able to get them across by putting them in the form of storytelling. Mm-hmm. And, um, not and that's even one reason it's so- like
1: fanciful, fanciful storytelling, he was telling stories of like daily things, like at that time. Right. And he was exactly. using bits and pieces of their lives, and then putting a point to it.
0: Yeah, and that's what's really kind of interesting to see because people, you know, have a re- reverence for the original text. It's really interesting to see all these stories that don't apply to our modern life <laughs> at all still used because they're the original stories. So, exactly. Like, you I mean, find we've them.
1: grown up with them, so now we know what they mean intrinsically.
0: Um, exactly. And it's so that's why so many
1: delving into that culture that you really realize how potent that story actually was.
0: Exactly, exactly. Yeah, that's the really fascinating thing. If you, you see like how those people relate to this story, mm-hmm. because he wasn't like using some timeless age, it was just mm-hmm. what it was his contemporaries. It's like exactly. now, if he like used selfies to describe the image of God or something, like, <laughs> it's just that's what we would relate with.
1: I really want to write a blog about that now.
0: It's like when he spoke to the, when the, uh, you know, the Sermon on the Mount was YOLO. That would be be if you speaking today. Or sorry, it would be YOLT. You only live twice. Eternal life, everybody. Oh, there
1: you go. (laughs) But yeah, that's definitely something. And that's not something that's just used um, in the New Testament or by Jesus. But like, that's something that's continued on. And people don't call them parables anymore. um, Mm -hmm. But that's what they are. Um, I mentioned the book that I was reading a while back, The Sacred Search. Um, mm-hmm. it's pretty much a self-help book. Like I wouldn't, yeah, I guess it's kind of, it's like a mixture of a theology and a self-help um, right. where it has practical advice for whatever, but it's also going into the backgrounds of things. Um, and all throughout that sprinkled in are just these stories of real people that this uh, writer has talked to and mm-hmm. stories of their lives. And since that book was about dating, they're all stories of relationships, how relationships went poorly, how they went well. And then he mm-hmm. would dissect those stories and. You know, put them in the chapter with where they belonged. So like, you know, this couple fell apart because um, these differences or whatever, and they were able to see that. And it, it really got you into the text and understanding right. the importance of what he was saying. And it's like, oh, mm-hmm. God, I don't want that to happen to me. Right. It, I should it's be not just an
0: intangible anymore. Exactly. It's written in a way that yeah. you directly relate with it. Exactly. Um, it's not
1: just like this idea, um, especially it's written from a Christian perspective, as I mentioned before. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's not just this idea of like, oh, you know, a Christian and a non-Christian shouldn't date. It's It's this idea <laughs> of, oh, if you're a Christian and you're dating a non-Christian, you're not going to have anyone to support you in your faith. And that's going to really, really bog you down.
0: Yeah, you're and going to need to be upfront about that and figure out what you're <laughs> exactly. It and and so it's like saying, things like we'll we'll that that
1: people worry. don't think about. And they're like, oh, well, yeah. you know, whatever. And I mean, people have different ideas. So I'm not arguing that. But that's kind of mm-hmm. the things that storytelling really helps you get across because you can understand why someone is saying something that on the surface doesn't sound like it matters at all.
0: Right. It's like, oh, that is just, you know, yeah. an intangible idea. But if exactly. you are like, like, oh, so oh that's that just could literally happen, happen to me. Yeah. Yeah. And then <laughs> and you absolutely. see it happen.
1: You're like, oh, man, that we should probably both be believing the same thing.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of something from a Christian point of view, mere Christianity, yeah. as we discussed, is kind of a masterful example of this technique. Um, mm-hmm. Because it, I remember when reading it, like, C.S. Lewis doesn't necessarily tell long stories. He more of uses metaphors, which are interesting They're different, but related to this, that if you, a slightly extended metaphor can kind of be a story in of itself. Mm -hmm. Um, It kind of almost becomes a parable. The line there is pretty gray. One that I always remember from Mere Christianity is when he's talking about the idea of morality being something that is entirely personal Um, Mm -hmm. and that so long as you are, you only care about your own morality, you don't need to care about the morality of people around you, Um, which is a very popular idea and still is a very popular idea um, in terms of how to look at morality in a society. And Mm -hmm. he used an analogy that I always remembered about that, which is, um, ship sailing. Yes. And the idea that if one ship falls into disrepair, that its navigation course, its navigation will be thrown off course and it might run into another ship. And Mm -hmm. it's the idea that you aren't just all completely individuals in society, that if one of you has a moral compass and the other doesn't, you're never going to, uh, you're never going to mess each other up with the different value systems because having a different value system than someone else could cause this type of collision. Mm-hmm. Um, and by tying it into that specific image, that little story, it like grounds it in your brain in a way other than just another idea, but gives it this truth of something that could actually happen, Absolutely. which is really interesting.
1: Yeah. Metaphors is one of the best ways to get across a really uh, difficult concept as well. Like similar to that, like, Showing the importance of something, but like, so for Mm -hmm. instance, if a scientist is going to start speaking to me about something that I don't understand, one of the best ways he can do it is put it to a metaphor um, Mm -hmm. and use objects from my life that I understand um, to do that. And I I was just thinking that because C.S. Lewis did the same thing. Uh, The one thing that I remembered was um, his perspective on the way God interacts with us on the time stream. Um, And he equated Mm -hmm. it to an author and a book. Um, and how right. you can open the book and you see Sally in the front, you open the book and you see Sally in the back. Sally's time stream is still going forward, but you can mm-hmm. change, you know, you can interact with it at different points in time. And so it's like right. something that will explain this big idea that you're like, oh, what? I don't, I don't, because you're, you're <laughs> Sally. Um, yeah. And yeah, people do that a lot, <laughs> a lot, especially yeah, in the academic world.
0: It's exceedingly important to understand concepts that you don't have the necessary knowledge to understand. Um, because one alternative is you get all the prerequisite knowledge to have this explained to you, or you can have it explained to you in something you already know about, which is what people write parables about. (laughs) Something else interesting, especially reading like nonfiction or like controversial issues is to understand that metaphors and parables and storytelling are playing on your emotions. So like, just because something makes sense as a metaphor does not mean it's true. Like, yeah. <laughs> that's why you don't want too much of an over-reliance on metaphors, because mm-hmm. you could make another metaphor about morality saying the complete opposite thing of C- that C.S. Lewis was saying, and it would be just as true. Mm-hmm. It's a way to make you understand the idea, but just because the metaphor clicks does not mean the idea is true.
1: Exactly, and, and sometimes just because the metaphor clicks in one way, it can be broken in another, and so you can't necessarily tie it to the metaphor and say, oh, well— you know, right. For instance, with the ships, it's like, well, as long as I can still steer correctly, it doesn't matter right, what my exactly. ship looks like on the inside. And that's.
0: I'll just take an airplane. It's exactly. Like a ship.
1: <laughs> you can pull them <laughs> apart real quick. So it really only exactly. works for what you're describing it as. Um, but it does come back to the idea of you having really strong metaphors because there are some times when it's just it's just unbreakable. And you're like, oh, my yep. gosh, it's actually exactly the same.
0: Absolutely. Metaphors are, to me, much less about proving a point as much as expressing a point. Expressing and, and illustrating. And then you can go on to the harder, yeah. harder job of proving it's,
1: it. Exactly. It's usually about um, solidifying it in the reader's mind and keeping exactly. it memorable. Getting it
0: across so they know what you're talking about so then they can debate you. Yeah, exactly. Or, or agree with you or whatever <laughs> they wish to do from and there. And they
1: don't forget because you just said gibberish.
0: <laughs> that's a great word. That's gibberish. a good word. I really hope it doesn't pronounce gibberish because that's the worst word.
1: That would be terrible. Um, but so it's bad. not a gif or gif, so I think we're good. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Excellent. Another interesting um, example of storytelling in nonfiction is an article I read recently that a friend of mine wrote. It was about Hearthstone, the uh, trading card game from Blizzard that I play a whole lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was talking about this really popular deck that's out there right now and talking about the history of the deck. And almost all Hearthstone articles out there are just very to the point, very little like... Um, very little craft to writing it. It's not that they're poorly written. They're just very utilitarian. Mm-hmm. They tell you how to play a deck. They tell you how to play it well. They tell you what cards to use, etc. That's very much from strategically-minded people writing strategy. This was interesting because he opened it telling the story of this deck and the deck that came before it like an epic fantasy prologue. That's um, really So it was like, let me see if I can pull some excerpts here from, from the document, which I have on my computer. One second. Um, so he would just be like... Uh, the, the unholy power of the deck was so great it threatened to disrupt the delicate balance established by its own creators. It's like, <laughs> this is awesome stuff. Like, what a cool way to explain this history that everyone who's reading this knows. But like, taking the idea of, of developers nerfing cards and banning certain things and turning it into this epic fantasy of how the developers were having to combat this great threat that they'd created. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was such a cool idea and got me completely into the article before it even started.
1: That's really cool. Um.
0: So that was another example of just like even bringing it to this stuff that can seem really dry and information based Mm -hmm. can still be made more interesting and relatable with storytelling.
1: Absolutely. And that's um, that goes along with um, the idea of writing copy and writing blogs and
0: Mm -hmm.
1: writing. um, I see that a lot in websites Um, when they're trying to, you know, describe their products or do something like that. They they pull in the stories because otherwise you're just reading a step-by-step how-to guide and it's so boring.
0: <laughs> right. And you write a lot of that kind of material yourself. That I is your job. I do.
1: I do. So. I write mostly in emails. Um, but that is actually one of the things that I try for as much as possible is I think, okay, mm-hmm. what's the point of this email? Okay, what is the story that can illustrate it? Um, and so I was actually able to do that recently um, because the, the company I'm working for, I think I mentioned this before, um, mm-hmm. we're writing kind of like a guidebook for how the program works right. and I wanted to illustrate this story of living life on purpose um, and that mm-hmm. was the story that I was like, the point that I wanted to get across in the very opening and so I found this uh, great story about Steven Spielberg and mm-hmm. I got to start investigating his life and use him as my illustrator. Um, and so I'm just telling the story of his life in the most engaging way possible and then coming back down to this idea of, you know, okay, now it's time to live your life on purpose. Um right. And everyone that I've shown it to so far has been very gripped by that. And because of that, they want to continue reading the rest of the book. And so mm-hmm. that's good marketing right there. There you go. <laughs> if I do See, say so myself.
0: Being good at your job. That's a <laughs> helpful, uh helpful attribute. But so yeah. what do you think is like the hardest part of writing with the storytelling is mind? Like what's the hardest part of marrying that with nonfiction?
1: Um I I as a, I, I started as a fiction writer. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I still feel like I'm a fiction writer at heart, and it can be very easy for me to get lost in the story. Right. Um so from a writer's standpoint, the hardest part is saying oh, well, I don't need to mention this really cool thing or I don't need to go into depth about this really cool thing. I don't need to explore this really cool thing because I'm trying to sell a product.
0: Right, And so exactly. you have to dial
1: it down. So it's kind of the opposite. I mean, it totally is. It's totally opposite mm-hmm. of the nonfiction and storytelling, which the whole point is to explore something cool. In so, mine, I just have to pull out the parts that fit with what I'm trying to say.
0: I just thought of something really cool in that we were talking about the differences between these and how they're opposite. Mm-hmm. And something that just popped into my mind is the perfect example for this, think of who we brought up for nonfiction and storytelling, who we brought up for storytelling and nonfiction. We brought up Tolkien for nonfiction and storytelling. Mm-hmm. We brought up C.S. Lewis for storytelling and nonfiction.
1: Oh, and if yeah. you look
0: at their comparative works, Narnia is an allegory, which means he is trying to make a point
1: mm-hmm. with a
0: story. Like, Narnia is about Christianity explicitly. Absolutely. Lord of the Rings uh, Tolkien has said he hates allegory. Like, (laughs) Lord of the Rings is informed by his Catholic faith Mm -hmm. and has messages in there, but it is not an allegory for it. It's just that's his worldview, so he's creating a lore about it. Absolutely. Those two, like, embody these two differences, those two authors. That's a really cool point. One of them is entirely focused on using nonfiction and storytelling, and the other one is entirely focused on using storytelling in his nonfiction. So it's really Mm -hmm. interesting.
1: Wow. And they were, like, friends and everything.
0: And they kinda hate each
1: other. For it. <laughs> <laughs> they kinda hate each other, but they also kinda liked each other and it was kinda fun. Yeah,
0: I just find it hilarious that like if you pick up a copy of Lord of the Rings, it has like this glowing quote on the back by uh C.S. Lewis and and uh, Tolkien is known to just call Narnia rubbish. <laughs> so it's like
1: <laughs> <laughs> I have to admit, I think Tolkien was a bit meaner to C.S. Lewis than C.S. Lewis was to Tolkien. Oh, yeah. C.S. Lewis <laughs> was a
0: nice guy. Tolkien was, was like, really you know, nice. the grumpy intellectual. But <laughs> in that respect, I mean, he was also a better fiction writer than C.S. Lewis. I am not going to
1: argue with that. But yeah, I do. I mostly love C.S. Lewis's um, nonfiction.
0: Yeah, he was a much more charismatic guy. Absolutely. He was a much more like a. Yeah, and they were writing. It's
1: kind of funny, though, because you actually see them writing for the exact same audience, too. Mm -hmm. Um, because you see The Hobbit written by J.R.R. Tolkien which was written for kids right? and then you see the Narnia series written by C.S. Lewis which was also written for kids and so based on the way that they write you see completely different works come from it one is very serious and while it's kind of lighthearted and fun um, it's Mm -hmm. very logical and it all makes sense but then you see the other side of it that's just kind of like crazy and everything (laughs) it's like the Harry Potter of his time (laughs) just pulling from everything
0: if you if you look at what they went on to write as well, it's like C.S. or, or Tolkien went on to write a bigger world that The Hobbit like hinted at. and mm-hmm. C.S. Lewis went to write about Christianity, which is what the which was uh, the basis
1: of what which he was is what Narnia was all about. Exactly, so it really
0: shows what each of their works were truly about in the end. Yeah,
1: it's really um, kind of cool. Which
0: is a fun juxtaposition. Uh, so yeah, that should do it for this episode, man. Abigail, that was a uh, quite successful. We like should right kick you off more often. We should. We're just sitting (laughs) focused when he's not on here.
1: (laughs) It was really fun though. No, we miss Steven. We do I love you Steven.
0: He would have had so many so many great comments. He really would
1: have. I think he we probably knows J.R.R. To Tolkien and C.S. Lewis better than both of us.
0: That's a good point. He also, <laughs> yeah, he would have known like about all of this and had so many hilarious, insightful, witty things to say. But hey, he's not here, so you'll have to deal with us. Uh, we, we're, we're talking like he's dead. We're being... <laughs> <I> no. <know.
1: laughs> but there are no tears. There are no tears.
0: There are no tears. It is because only... Because he's it is not only...
1: dead. He's still alive.
0: Yep, exactly. The, the cat woman ate him. It's a she problem. might have,
1: but he stabbed her with a sword. So
0: In what furnace is his brain? <laughs> All right. So that'll do it for this episode. Uh, if you want to follow us on Twitter, we are, for the love of, no, just kidding. We are the Person Show. <laughs> Our email is thirdpersonshow at gmail On YouTube, you can hopefully find this episode and other recent episodes at Third Person a Storytelling Podcast. If it isn't updated by now, I apologize. We're, we're working through that. Uh, well, I mean, we if, are. If, if
1: you're listening to this and it and it has, if you're listening to this on YouTube and it hasn't been put on YouTube yet,
0: that's weird. Uh,
1: we're impressed.
0: We're really impressed. Like, you that means you, cool, that means you took podcast. the file and uploaded it yourself.
1: Exactly. So email us and tell that us how you did that. That is copyright
0: infringement, sir. Give me that back. Exactly. <laughs> anyway, uh, or sir or ma'am. I'm sorry. I don't mean oh. to be sexist on who knows how to upload to YouTube. Um, <laughs> so, <else> <laughs>
1: That's
0: so bad. I know, it's pretty dumb. Uh, whales or Whales, we are a production of the Whales or Whales Network. Check out whalesorwhales.com for other awesome shows like this with other awesome people like us. Um, speaking of awesome people like us, if you want to follow me personally on Twitter, I am Lord Meldor, that is L-O-R-D-M-E-L-D-O-R-R. Stephen, who is not here, my brother, is Stephen Kelly, 180, and Abigail is the Thinky Reader. Um, so, those are all our... our respective twitter handles Woo-hoo. and yeah that'll do it oh yeah and you can check out abigail's blog at uh is it, aimlesshyperbole.wordpress? it is. Nope, aimless Aimlesshyperbole. hyperbole dot wordpress or just dot com dot com if you
1: awesome. if you want more examples of storytelling in nonfiction, that's a lot of what i do um yep on that blog
0: so that is true that is true yeah. and i wish i could say i write a bunch of nonfiction to story but i don't not no. yet i wish i i should write more uh, like uh epic fantasy you really
1: yeah you really should
0: I totally That was time actually for that. the first
1: thing I remember writing seriously was in epic fantasy because I that's think what, that's everybody's. Yeah, first that's
0: thing. what everyone, that's what Stephen wrote first. That's what <laughs> I wrote first.
1: It's All funny because right. mine was a mixture of J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis.
0: Well, okay. So here's the kind of dumb thing. And this is kind of off topic. So I won't go on too long about this, but when, when Stephen and I were young, we just wrote a bunch of like interesting, um, like, uh, almost completely weird almost surreal like just short stories mm-hmm. um because that's what you do when you're young you just write <laughs> what's ever interesting to you um and so those were interesting we didn't complete all of them but they were really cool uh and original and funny in their own like you know childish sort of way then when steven decided he was going to be a serious writer i put that in quotation marks he started writing an epic fantasy and yeah. it was like really generic and it's like why did you lose that actual it's not like for some reason people <laughs> think when they actually start writing they suddenly not have to become boring Absolutely. And they said have to write like everyone else.
1: They have to like um, create the entire world and then go into yeah. it. it. Like, no, no, no. That's not what a baby writer does. That's what a pop. writer does. Just start writing. That's the
0: fun <laughs> thing. Anyone who's about to start, who's interested in writing, that is just my my number one advice to you. Just keep writing. It's the same thing I do in songwriting. When you get stuck on something, move on to writing. something else and try it. Even if the, the words you're saying don't you like make
1: any it. sense. Like just keep right. typing words and eventually they will. And then you can fix it in post
0: right and just keep trying different genres because maybe you're a like a noir writer and you just don't know yet because you never tried it so just keep writing whatever's most interesting that's what i do with songwriting Mm -hmm. i'm an amateur musician so i'm not going to like be making stuff for movies or something i just start writing whatever i'm interested in doing at the time
1: yep i never Um, thought i'd be a nonfiction writer but it turns out to be the majority of what i do these days
0: there you go so that's your end of episode pep talk (laughs) for
1: all you writers out there who are not just readers
0: Right or anything else? You make videos, something? Send them our way. Yeah. I'd love to see them and uh, just make what you love to make and uh, see what comes of it. Um, and yeah, that'll do it for this episode. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you, Abigail, for for joining me here.
1: Oh, you're welcome. It was such a sacrifice.
0: I know it was. You are you <laughs> don't have much time these days. <laughs> Abigail. I appreciate it. Well, that's
1: true, but this was probably like the highlight of my day. So we're, this is good. Yeah,
0: actually, same here. So yay <laughs> us.
1: Uh, we're awesome. We all-
0: We will be back in two weeks with our new bi-weekly schedule, so we will see you all soon. And in the meantime...
1: No. uh, No, no.
0: We have to have an outro. It's like a tradition at this point. We're not
1: hugging any books, though.
0: We're not hugging... You know, for the outro... Go
1: hug C.S. Lewis. I am
0: going to read you the entirety of The Tiger by William (laughs) Blake. Tiger, Tiger, Burning... It's from uh, 1794, so I think copyright's expired. Okay. Okay. Tiger, also tiger is spelled the Y. Tiger, tiger burning bright in the forest.